This is episode 73 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. I'm Brendan Jackson. This episode, we hung out with Katie Dill. She's the head of experience design for Airbnb. Fantastic conversation. We just got back from Epicurrence with her. We heard her talk and we couldn't wait to have her on the show. Before we get into that, we want to thank our two sponsors that made this episode possible. Huge thank you once again to One Month. Look, a lot of people are wanting to learn to code, learn new skills, uh, and there's a lot of places to do it, but One Month is the only place that actually has you building real products. Uh, so if you want to learn how to code, One Month can actually teach you how to build things like Instagram and Pinterest. Uh, they use real-world tools like GitHub and Heroku, Optimizely, Mixpanel, a ton of other amazing tools. It's not a, a classroom setting. You don't get a, a degree. You're just building things. If you want to learn things like iOS, HTML and CSS, Ruby on Rails, Python, jQuery, even stuff like content marketing, One Month has courses for it. It's an awesome service that is actually teaching you core skills to build things. If you want to start building stuff, go to onemonth.com slash design details. That'll get you 25% off your first month when you go to that link. Again, huge thank you to One Month for sponsoring the show. Our second sponsor, as always, Dropbox. They're just one of the most fantastic tools for working together with teams. They help people get things done more than anything. Like that's their whole goal. That's what all their products are built around. Mailbox helps you get your email taken care of. Carousel helps you share photos with your friends and family. Dropbox Paper now lets you share files. Like I've heard it's really good for specs because you can actually embed your design files in there and then talk about them in text collaboratively, which is something you can't do anywhere else. It's fantastic. And on top of that, they sync all your files across all your devices with version history, with incredible sharing tools for teams, for companies, even if you're by yourself, keeping things backed up across your phone, across your computer, across anything else you've got. It's wonderful. We just want to thank Dropbox one more time for sponsoring the show. Couldn't do it without them. Go check them out at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. With that, let's get into the episode with Katie Dill. I'm Katie Dill. I am a designer. I work at Airbnb and the experience design team. I live in San Francisco, love the outdoors, married, got a wonderful little dog, and uh, I'm originally from New York. The great family now divided across the country. Moms in San Francisco, or moms in Savannah, and sisters in Alaska, and they're visiting tomorrow. So I'm so excited to see them. Nice. Mm-hmm. And tell us what you're doing at Airbnb. I lead the experience design team at Airbnb, and the experience design team are the group of designers, interaction, visual, service designers that create the digital product. Uh, but of course, our product uh, is actually primarily experienced offline. And that's actually why we call it experience design, because you're you're designing a lot more than the pixels. You're designing a lot more than what we typically think of as a product. You're thinking about what is this experience going to be like in the offline world when you meet a stranger perhaps for the first time or you go and explore a new city. And so we wanted to make sure that when we were seeking out new designers to join the team, they understood kind of like the complexity of what they're getting themselves into and that it's not just product design, but it's actually like you're setting out to design an experience for both the hosts, the guests, and actually some cases uh, internal employees as well. So it's very different than a lot of the like research and wireframing that typical like user experience design does. I mean, it definitely entails that. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the way we um, kind of like impart impact is through the pixels, but the result of the pixels is something much broader, much grander. And that way, well, I, mean, I don't want to make it sound like too over the top, but the the pixels that we're designing have to have these implications in the offline world. So you have to have the ability to think through systems or lo- over longer stretches of time uh, to imagine the implications that will be created with that. Uh, so there's absolutely wireframing and there's a lot of research that goes into it. Uh, but when you think about that, you have to you know, understand like, all right, imagine this person from, you know, Sao Paulo is going to set up a profile to uh, introduce themselves f- to someone from Shanghai. They speak different languages. They have different senses of hospitality. Uh, so how do we do that? And how do we build a you know a digital interface that's going to allow them to start to introduce the, themselves to each other when you know the ramifications of our design don't happen till far down the road? And that like that introduction when they first meet, like that profile they created should have helped that in person meeting that might happen six months after the creation of that profile. How does experience design fit into 
the overall design structure at Airbnb. Well, actually, we, we've got a, a fun name for it. Our uh, design team's nickname is EPIC, uh, and it's an acronym. Uh, it stands for Experience, Production, Insights, and Content. Uh, and they, the irony is, is actually that the names of some of those teams have changed since then, but the, you know, the acronym's so good, why not just keep it? Uh, so Experience is, of course, the team that I lead of uh, Interaction, Visual, and Service Designers. And then the P stands for Production, which is actually now called Design Ops. And they are essentially kind of like the machine that helps to uh, fuel all the toolkits and the uh, final asset production um, out in, you know, to development. And then Insights is actually now called Research. That's the user research team that we work really closely with at all stages of the design process. And then Content Strategy, which is like copywriting on steroids. They do a lot more than just words. They're thinking through like, you know, the whole flow and the story that is being told and the message that's being told. We talk a lot about titles mm. and things like that. Why did the names of those teams change from insights to research? Like, why is that an important change to make? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, we often talk about the title experience design. Is that, well, if we called it product design, I think people would probably more quickly know what is the makeup of that team and who's on it. Uh, but in that particular case, you know, the simplicity of meeting the standards of the rest of the world uh, probably wouldn't help us for that reason that I gave. But for something like insights, it is a degree removed from what people typically understand. And so we found ourselves constantly saying insights, it's the user research team. And it's like, well, maybe we should just call it, you know, experience research or whatever that, that it actually is. So it was a change simply for the sake of explainability. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. You know, there are times where like flourishy words are really helpful and, you know, kind of help to show that like, well, things are different now. And that's kind of what we're doing with experience design. Like things are different. And that's why we want to explain that. Uh, but in other times, like mm, flourishy words for flourishy sake is not good. I'm curious what the hardest part or like what are the, some of the, the struggles that you guys have designing a product that so much of it happens offline out of your control, uh, the human to human inter interface, uh, the the condition of Airbnb places like so much of that's outside of your control. What are the key handoffs? Key handoffs. Oh, dare we go into that? <laughs> <laughs> what are some like the the biggest struggles and and things that you think about daily about like how to make that better? Yeah. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. That is definitely one of the biggest challenges as an Airbnb designer is trying to uh, create a coherent and you know, reliably high quality, enjoyable experience for both our host and guests throughout every stage of their journey when a good portion of that journey we don't have direct control over. I'm actually giving a talk on this um, at the O'Reilly Conference in um, January uh, here in San Francisco. And so so actually, this is a sneak peek. It's a sneak peek. And I've already started to like put my thoughts together on it. But the truth is everything we do contributes to that. Um, and, you know, is what we're, we're tr striving to do to bring, you know, better clarity and uh, more coherency to that journey. You know, we, we talk a lot about it at Airbnb, but it's um, a really core part of what we do is to storyboard out the journey. Uh, so we call it Snow White because it was informed and inspired by uh, Walt Disney and the Snow White story. They storyboarded out the, the film before they created it so they could know all the various parts that are going into it. And so I think it's about three years ago, Airbnb did the same thing for the guest journey and the host journey. And it's up on the wall for everybody to see. And with that, we can look at it and think about, well, where are we helping our hosts and, and our guests? Like, where are we actually there, like providing them the, the support that they need? And when are we not? And when might we be able to provide more help for them? So, for example, when you're looking for a listing as a guest, you know, you've got the Airbnb product on your mobile, you've got it on desktop, on tablet, uh, even on your watch now, and you, you can look at different, various listings. But then... When you're arriving at the, the listing, perhaps, and you're looking for your key, you know, are we helping you as much as we can? And so that's where we, we use that storyboard to think about the moments. And then we also use the storyboard to think about, well, like you're looking for that key. Well, we might not be there. You might not have service on your cell phone. Uh, maybe, you know, that the, something went wrong and it's not working as planned. So maybe we can't be there. Maybe we don't have direct control to be the person like to, to help you at that moment. And so we think about what other moments in the journey could we have done something better to help you in that other time. And so that might mean providing you with the directions that you could save offline so it's available on your phone when you're not there, for example. You know, that's like a small part of it. 
doing the same thing with the, the profile that I pointed out. Like we're trying to set expectations. We're trying to introduce you to someone that you can start building trust between two strangers or help you get to know the place before you get there. And all of that actually happens at a much earlier stage in the journey than when it's actually, you know, a part of your experience. And so we need to account for that earlier. You have a quizzical look on your I, face. I love that companies talk about user journeys and you guys literally have a journey that you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Travel experience is inherently a journey. So yes, it's unavoidable, but all companies should be thinking about this. And you know, when I was working with early stage startups at that uh, venture capital firm that I was working at before Airbnb, a company called Greenstart, we were helping early stage companies try to you know, think about their product experience and all of the entailments of that uh, and really understand their users to build a great product. And honestly, I think like the number one value that we could bring to them was help them create a journey map. Like actually sit down and think about what your users are going through and sketch it out because seriously, a picture does tell a thousand words and think about like, are they carrying bags when they're trying to do that? You know, are they like outside, inside? Like all of these things illuminate so much about the product need and it's amazing how few people are taking that step when they're trying to create a product. Uh, so, you know, I sometimes feel silly to, to bring it up so often because I think as designers, like we kind of get it, uh, but it's you know, surprisingly absent. Uh, so, I, you know, for a little while I was setting out to do um, a journey map app so like, companies could just like make their journey map. Uh, so, you know, if anyone does that, just give me 10%. <laughs> your idea forever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> copyright 2015 Kenny <laughs> uh the reason i had a quizzical look is because you said that you came up with that three years ago or the the company came up with that three yeah years ago. i might be getting the timing wrong maybe it's a little more i don't know uh but basically what happened is that brian our ceo and one of the co-founders read the biography of uh walt disney and in it, they talk about the creation mm -hmm. of Snow White, which was like, I don't know if it was the first, but one of like the first long form animations. And he was trying to get like multiple artists to be on the same page about what was being created. And so they did a storyboard where they all kind of like sketched out like in a simple form, all the various frames or the moments of the storyline so mm -hmm. that they can then divide and conquer. So it's a really great tool to bring a lot of people together to create something together. And yeah, it's not rocket science, but surprisingly absent in a lot of companies. Is that roadmap changing and evolving all the time or has it remained roughly the same since you came up with it? Yes, it's always changing in reality. It would be probably dangerous to draw it so specifically that like you had to like change out the frame every time you launched a new like A-B test or on the product. So actually the way it's drawn is kind of high level. Like you see characters um, and you, you, know, you see the host and you see them like holding a device and you know they're going in and out of their house, but you don't see what's on the screen. And so that way it captures like the core moments and we sought to simplify the number of moments that are captured. I think there's 15 frames for the host and 15 for the guest oh wow and you know all things considered obviously the journey is a lot more complicated than that but we wanted to make sure that we were just understanding what are the like the fundamental steps of it and then you know as we iterate on it and we change on it like we have multiple storyboards but they're not like up on the wall and you know at some point maybe like when we stop using cell phones as often as we do you know we'll switch out one of the frames to update it for the device that the person's carrying uh, but it's more about like thinking about the human journey, not necessarily like what are they seeing on the screen at that time? Like we have other places where we show that. Just because I'm not familiar too much with this idea of a uh, design ops or production team. Mm -hmm. What does that look like when you, uh, your team, the experience team comes up with something and wants to implement it? Do you just like hand off a rough sketch template to design ops and they tweak it and make it perfect <laughs> just explain like yeah, what yeah. that no, even means it's a good question because i'm sure you know every company has their different forms of these things and different names for it uh so our design ops team is actually comprised of uh prototypers production designers and project managers and the so project managers you probably know what they do yeah and they does anyone know what they do? Really? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, everyone knows like all the things they do, and like, can you capture it in a sentence? Yeah, yeah, that's tough. But yes, they um, in many ways, you know, they, they they keep the machine on its rails, and they they help make things work. Um, uh, 
uh, and keep things very well organized and help cohere things across teams. But what um, the production designers do, um, these are, um, in some cases, they are the folks that love to be all the way zoomed in in Photoshop, um, and they are absolute sticklers for the details, and they can help uh, make you know the perfect assets. That's a that asset that's going to be cut in all the necessary ways for every possible device that it'll ever appear on. Uh, they'll get the you know, all the images ready for every which way they'll ever need to be shown up, um, and they do kind of like all that like final refinement detail uh, that often is necessary for either you know the the production build or maybe uh, assets for marketing, etc. Uh, but other things that they do actually where you know they are a big part of the process and all stages is that they also are owners of the design language system. Uh, so we we're, we're actually constantly evolving our design language system and currently you know doing a, a kind of a big push on that. So the production team, would be the owners of the toolkits and essentially all of the the asset libraries. So when a new designer starts, you know, they can hand over like these are all of the assets. This is you know, what we use to create product so that we can create product faster. And you're not, you know, asking yourself, you know, what what's the grid like or, you know, what you know, what should the margin be on this because it's already defined and we aim to have consistency and coherency. So there's a lot of these things that shouldn't be thought through on a regular basis. They should already be predefined. And the uh, production team owns that and they keep them up to date and make sure that we have them for every possible device and every which way we would ever need it. Um, and then they also do a lot of the kind of like finalization before production launch. Um, and so that would be a redlining and the cutting of assets. You know, they have a lot of tools that can help them do that and more of an automated process. Uh, but they, um, they play a big part in making sure that you know, our quality is kept high. Where's the line drawn between when something's the job of a experienced designer to like make this screen, for example, the you're designing a screen. What what's the cutoff between handing that to the production team to like make it perfect, make it so? <laughs> like, uh, why is that not on? Why is that not the experienced designer's job to make it perfect? Oh, it's definitely their job to make it perfect. No, the the production designers are not making it perfect for the, the designers. Like they should, it should already be so. Um, okay. Designers okay. are responsible for the quality. Okay. What they I just mean, throw gray boxes around. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, this, is, yeah. this is actually a house. <laughs> it's just a in. square though. <laughs> you just give me the idea of what you want. I'll go make it. No, 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 no. Uh, what I mean about how they're helping the designers make it perfect is the the tools to begin with. Got it. Okay. Um, so all the templates and assets all the things. And assets. And exact. Exactly. And then where else they help to make things perfect is that you can design a mock. Let's say you design a mock for desktop, uh, tablet, um, and mobile. And then, you know, what we really need is like five other versions of that desktop that are going to be opened up on a tablet and, you know, a mobile phone, et cetera. Uh, so they can also help with that. They definitely help, you know, kind of like extend the design uh, to other areas. And that is very much a partnership, right? Because, you know, they want to make sure that they're, you know, able to, you know, make fast decisions, but also want to make sure that, like, in no shape or form, are we losing the integrity of the original design intent? So it's very much a collaboration. Gotcha. Okay. That sounds so awesome. I want a production designer. Yeah, this... I'm trying <laughs> to draw parallels, and I feel like we have some parallels at Facebook, but not all the way. Um, like, we have an interface team that does similar things. Similar production things? Yeah. Like, uh, see, I work on a one person team right now. Like, I don't know how any of this stuff works. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really weird to have, all of have that. Yeah. You can start building that, buddy. Yeah. A style guide of sorts. Tell us what you look for in designers that you're bringing onto Airbnb. There are a lot of things that we are looking for that, uh, in the designers that we bring into Airbnb. Every individual person that we're bringing into the team, you know, we hope are going to, you know, take the team to an even better place, right? That they're going to, you know, add to the culture in such a way that it's, you know, going to take what we've done and, and, and take it even further. Uh, so it's a positive contribution that you know, amplifies the current state of things. And so that's in the work and that's also in the culture. And those are things that we pay a lot of attention to. Um, I love how much attention Airbnb at, at whole has put into the culture, um, in the way that we've done so, it's actually a, a very core part of our interview process. We actually have people that you know, are individually looking to understand the person's cultural fit. And we think about that also on the design team, even beyond just Airbnb at whole, is that like, you know, how might this person fit in? There's not like a, you need to fit this type, but more so that like, is this going to enrich what we have? 
kind of the most simple way I can put what we're looking for in terms of a designer that joins our team is humility, craft, and hustle. And those three words are important to us, whether or not they're like the exact right words, but the, the notion of those three words are important to us because it's that kind of balance that you get between them that exemplifies somebody who can come strong with you know great ability and talent, uh, but do so in a way where they're not going to step on each other's toes and we can recognize the fact that they're designing for others, right? So the humility, you know, having that empathy for our users, understanding that it's a collaborative endeavor of what we're doing, right? You're going to work with other designers, you're going to work with project man- product managers, product managers, engineers, etc. And the hustle part, right? Like being able to get shit done and get it done, you know, quickly, appropriately, effectively, uh, and, you know, be proactive when you see a problem and go after it, be resourceful and be entrepreneurial, and then, of course, craft, which, you know, we obviously look for the best talent ever, right? We want to find the folks that are going to be able to elevate the quality of what we're doing, you know, make it ever more innovative, ever more useful and usable, and, of course, you know, desirable. We want people to come and be able to, you know, up-level other people on the team and, like, show how things can be done better you know maybe they've learned new things or there's new tools to do um, or have a greater attention to detail uh, so that we can you know continue to create great product better than we were yesterday do you think there's ever a clash between hustle and craft in the sense of being able to build things really fast but also like make them perfect and you're nodding yeah oh yeah yeah there is tension between all three of them and that's kind of the point right because it's like you can find the best designer in the world and they might have an ego and what (laughs) designers never have ego (laughs) right yeah so it's like that those are the moments right where it's like that you know we need to remind ourselves that you know while we're looking for people with exceptional skill and great craft we're also looking for humility. So in our interview process, if you know they're just like, whoa, they blow us all away, what they've done. But all they talk about is I, 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 and I'm just, you know, I'm so great and I've done this. And, you know, you could just tell like their ego is just like dripping from them. It's like, well, no, they're, they're not going to do great work here. And they're not going to help other people do great work. And therefore, in the end, this is not going to elevate the team. Uh, and so same thing with between hustle and craft is that, yeah, you make a great point. It's like, you know, you're trying to move fast, but yet like have, you know, the utmost attention to detail and absolutely that could be imbalanced but that's the point is that we want to you know to think about both of those uh and make sure that we're finding the right balance between them uh because you know while we want somebody who's going to be a stickler for the details we need people that are also going to know how to be a stickler for the details and prioritize and stay focused and actually have their eye on the ball and help move things forward rather than you know maybe get stuck in you know an endless cycle of refinement right do you have a process to identify the hustle part of that in the interview process? How do you know? That's a great question. I, you know, I, I do think a lot about that too, as you know, especially as our team grows, you know, how, how might we continue to calibrate everybody on the team in terms of interviewing and knowing what to look for? Because when our team is really small and, you know, there was a small group of us that were in every interview, uh, it's really easy to like, know what to look for and just be able to do it based on like, well, you know, based on the conversations we had and the stories this person told, I I have a sense they have hustle. Uh, But now as our team is larger uh, and, you know, you have more people interviewing and we don't have the same people in every interview, uh, I do think we need to be better about having a kind of a certain way of learning these things. Uh, So right now, I wouldn't say we do have like a a written down process for identifying hustle. Uh, It's been more of like a tacit knowledge, but I think that we would probably need to think about how we how we might do that. Uh, But you do you know it when you see it is a large part of it. Like side projects? I wouldn't necessarily say side projects are the way. I think it is a way of identifying it. You know, you, you hear in their stories uh, about, you know, like how they got to where they are, uh, where, you know, they they made, you know, a big choice to change their career path and needed to go and 
move across the country and learn a, a new way of doing things because you know they had this passion, right? Like, like oh, that, that's interesting. Like, they're a risk taker, right? They they do what it takes to to go to that next level and to follow their their passion. Um, or you hear a story about on the job how they were, um, you know, they they hit a wall and they didn't know what to do about it, and so they you know they went and they they talked to the right people and they assembled a team and got folks together to to go after something. Speaking of moving across the country, mm. oh yeah, you're from New York. Yes, originally. How did you end up here? So I grew up in New York, uh, Westchester County, which is just north of New York City. It's kind of like the Marin of New York. And <laughs> the Marin of New York. <laughs> yeah. It's the best way to put it for people that haven't been there. Got it. Uh, and uh, then during college, uh, which was in upstate New York, where I was studying history of all things, where at? Uh, Colgate University. And I was studying abroad uh, in Florence, Italy, and I fell in love with architecture. And I was like, this is amazing. I just, I love what it does to someone. I love the, the history held within it. Any particular school? Uh, studying architecture? Well, actually, it was just for studying abroad. So was, I was actually at NYU, and it was only, what was that, like six months or something like that. Uh, and so it was just a taste, but it was a taste that got me really excited about it. Okay. And so at that moment, I was like, all right, I need to do this. This is what I'm really excited and passionate about, uh, is learning more about architecture and doing architecture. But at the time, while I was still at Colgate, I was a junior at Colgate, uh, I still loved the school and what I was learning as a history major. And so I decided that I would wait, graduate, and then you know go and figure out architecture later because at Colgate, we didn't have any architecture. Architectural, hold on. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. But the cool thing was is that you know the hustle part, right, is that I wanted to learn as much as I could about architecture while I was at Colgate where it didn't have it. So I took everything that was related to it, so scene design. And so I learned how to make you know, basically architecture of very little things that would sit on the <laughs> stage, uh, which was interesting because you have a whole new set of problems when you have a whole audience looking at it versus people walking through it. Uh, but at any rate, I was doing all the little things that I could to, to learn more about it and, and essentially start a portfolio. And then I graduated Colgate and moved to Boston because I wanted to pursue this. And I knew there were architecture schools there. There was also quite a few architectural firms. So I was kind of exploring both the internship route and going to school. Uh, I think I took a couple of classes and was just trying to like get my feet wet and get in there and get a portfolio together. And during that time, my roommate, uh, Tiffany, who I was living with in Boston, actually saw the 60-minute special on making the shopping cart. Uh, I know a lot of designers have seen this, and it's actually what got them into design. So it's like, I have no I've idea what this is. You should check it out. I mean, at this point, the you know, actual shopping cart, designing a shopping cart. Yeah, so it's like they're they're trying to be innovative with the shopping cart. And unfortunately, what they designed does not exist today. Uh, you know, they I think ended up with like you know you'll have a screen that'll like, pick things for you. I don't know. That sounds terrible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I don't even know if I've seen the sixty minute special, but she saw. It. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! She saw secondhand. It. Yeah. It's amazing how many people have seen it and they're like, yeah, that's what got me in design. Because the cool thing about it is that it's you know many, many years old. I mean, this is 2003, 2002 uh, okay. when they did this, I think. I don't know. I don't yeah, know I was not paying years. attention to design at that point. No, <laughs> and, I mean, nobody was. I had never heard of product design up until this point. And you know, it just wasn't something that was talked about in liberal arts colleges on the East Coast. And so she saw this and like other people that have seen it, you know, started to learn about what this thing is designed. You know, they showed the whole process. They showed the whole like post-it notes and research part of it and the iteration and all these great things about the process. And so she recommended I look into it because while she was living with me um, in Boston and college previously, uh, she knew all the little inventions I'd make around the apartment. Like I'll fix the door and, you know, fix the dishwasher with a barrette. And, crafty. And, yeah, like crafty, resource, resourceful, whatever. Like silly little things like that. And she's like, you're a product designer. You should check this out. And so I did. I started calling product designers and asking them about their job. And that's where she's like this whole thing shifted in my brain where like, you know, it's like that aha moment of like, oh my God, that's what I should be doing. You and, literally called people? Yeah. Just cold called on the phone one, like, what did you say? Well, I started with the, uh, what is it, the IDSA website. And so there are people on that website that are like, they actually like put themselves out there as 
mentors or something like this. So kind of like the door was open a little bit already. And so I reached out to them. I may have emailed them first. That probably would be the best approach. But I I reached out to them and just like, you know, I'm curious about your job. I'd love to learn more. Um, You know, can we talk for a little bit? And it's amazing how many people, you know, are that gracious with their time and would spend time with me. I chatted with them and learned about what they do and learned what's great and learned what's not great. I also did this with architects, by the way, and learned a lot of things that are not great, and which is why I was like, all right, maybe architecture is not for me. I'm slightly more impatient than I think I should be mm. to be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there. Um, basically, I, I learned about product design, learned that it was basically like architecture, but smaller than a building and a much, much quicker <laughs> design, life cycle. Like architecture, but smaller than a building. <laughs> yeah, totally. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. So um, no, and talking to these... Uh, talking to these product designers and I would ask them, how do I get into this? And, you know, I tell them about what I've done and they're like, all right, well, you have basically no portfolio. So you, you, you can't just go and design and you probably aren't going to get into grad school, but you should probably go to school. You should probably build out a portfolio. You should learn about design. And then, you know, I had asked like, well, wh- where's the best place? What do I do? Um, and a lot of them said Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And so I applied there. I went out and met with uh, the dean or the chair of product design and Oddly enough, they took me in. Honestly, I I should show you my sketchbook. I still have it. And it's like 99% words and very little sketches. And that's, you know, new for Art Center. Art Center is like known for its like shit hot sketchers, like people that just like, you know, are just creators with beautiful sketch and not me. Uh, But they (laughs) like the ideas, I suppose. I don't know. But they they saw something there. They let me in. And a very hasty decision. I uh, moved across the country. Went to Art Center, a four-year program, and uh, learned about product design, uh, which then, you know, obviously took me into a, a whole other field of design, essentially. But uh, the, did you graduate from Colgate and then? Yeah, there was Colgate a year and then Art Center. Wow, I couldn't finish four years of school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of school, but it was such different experiences. Like Colgate was kind of like the work hard, party hard, right? You know, and it was like learning lots of different subjects, but you know, mainly it's a lot about like friends and the community mm. that you build, and you're learning and the like, dope toothpaste. Yeah, the, the toothpaste. Yes, like, <laughs> you've never heard that one, have you? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's no, kind of funny one. But, uh, you know, you learn a lot of these kind of like core skills that'll help you for the rest of your life, but they're not necessarily the, the skills that you're going to use on a daily basis as to like your your trade. Ecology um, shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Time well spent, but different time for sure. And then Art Center, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was kind of like brutal in a wonderful way. You know, it's like nonstop work. Like, and I think I went out maybe once in all four years because you're just like, like real life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a really great like crash course. And like, this is what real life is. It's like a job as a product designer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and that's why, you know, I, I did feel well prepared when I left because it's like, oh, yes, I've been put through the ringer in that way. So I'm ready for it. If someone came to you today and they were not a product designer, but they wanted to get into design, what would your advice to them be? If they weren't a product designer and wanted to get into design. The same call that you made to someone, they recommended college. Or yeah. What would you say to them? I think... I think that it was great advice. The person that you know gave me that advice certainly saw you know my interest and my passion and and recognized that you know I was ready to commit to that kind of exploration. Um, and it was through many conversations that I got to that point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to school. I would definitely not recommend to the first person that said, I'm interested in design to be like, cool, go to school. Like, go sign up for the most expensive school possible. <laughs> like, no, I, I think, you know, if someone is has an inkling or an interest, like, that's awesome. Like, I would love to, to fuel that flame, uh, but I would want to do so in, in a way that also recognizes the diversity of things that you could go and pursue. Making the choice to go to school in a particular program, it sets you down a path. It's certainly not restrictive, and I wouldn't say that, you know, you're going to back yourself into any kind of hole but I would say you know take the time to explore options and understand what is out there and where where you might be going uh, even you know eventually you'll take a path and it'll take you any number of ways that you never predicted and that's fine uh, but if you're thinking about it talking to real life designers about their job what they do uh, what are the things that they learned that were really effective in helping them and preparing them for where what they're going after um, is really powerful you know I, I have talked to folks you know, that are interested in places like Art Center that are right out of high school. And, you know, in, in fact, you know, I would talk to them a lot about pursuing, you know, maybe going to another school prior to going to someplace like Art Center, like, which is, you know, really, you know, an intense, um, kind of like high performance 
school where you know your expectations are such that yeah you're gonna be working around the clock um, and dedicated to one particular area whereas you know if you're coming right out of high school like it might be an opportunity to explore more broadly um, and get a sense of like what are the things that you're really interested in you know like what kind of design do you want to do um, you know is it design that you want to do or is it actually you know maybe more on the engineering side of things and you want to get closer to the technology a lot of these things would dictate probably what school you'd go to or whether you went to a school versus uh, maybe worked as more of like an apprentice uh, because there's you know endless opportunity. So having a, a sense of that before diving straight in. Does design school background factor in at all to the people you hire? Design school where someone went does not... Or if they did? Or if they did does not factor in as a primary concern. I would say I, as I scan down their resume I might look at it and be like oh they went to art center that's cool or like oh you know they went to that school like I haven't heard the best things about that school and it might like give me you know a second question but I would absolutely not make a decision based on that and whether it's like oh I'm not going to look at their portfolio or I am because it's it's their work that matters the most you know and like I think about the fact that art center took me in with like really no reason to I mean they didn't know that I would be a good designer but they saw in me something that I would assume, you know, gave them that faith. But it certainly wasn't my sketches and it wasn't my background because before that I hadn't been doing design. And I think we can all attest to the fact that there are some really great designers out there that haven't spent, you know, a day in design school and maybe didn't even finish high school, but they are excellent at what they do. And that's for terrific that they have been able to accomplish that. And I think that, you know, they certainly deserve and are probably getting just as much opportunity as others that have. So after school, you jump straight into a job at one of the most prestigious like firms in the country. World, right? They have international offices. Yeah, Frog. Frog yeah. Design. You yeah. want, how did you go from art school graduate to this internationally acclaimed company? So I went from Art Center to Frog Design in San Francisco. And it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, company to work at. I was really excited to be there and had a very great five years there. Just an incredible group of folks and get to work on some of the most amazing projects. Uh, how did I end up there? Well, I think what worked really well for what they were trying to hire is that I, during my time at Art Center, uh, where I was studying product design or otherwise known as industrial design, I started to learn about kind of like the fringes of that work and where else it can go and expand to. Uh, so for example, uh, while I was at Art Center, I did a study abroad at a business school, INSEAD in Singapore. And so I was there for, I think, four months or something along those lines. Uh, and so going to a business school, interacting with business students all day long, taking their classes, working with them on their projects, uh, got to see how designers working with business people uh, can do really great things together. You know, the, I think the takeaway that I was supposed to have from that experience was, you know, how to do the business of design, like, I don't know, run our books and figure out those kinds of things. But honestly, what I took away was quite different. It was much more about this, like, really fruitful collaboration. You know, designers, like, we, we think about things often very visually, right? We think about things in terms of journeys and users, and we like to iterate. These are not necessarily the go-to processes for a business person. They have other ways of thinking it, right? They, they like to you know, look at the data. They like to analyze. They like to think about like what has happened in the past. What can we learn from that? Whereas a designer often, like their you know, kind of position is to think of like, what could it be? Not necessarily always analyzing the past, right? So if you pair those things together, really great things can happen, right? It's like a more robust way of looking at the world and, and bringing new things to the table. I came away from that really inspired. And from that, I then took another uh, abroad experience and went to an internship in Australia. And there I was working at a management consultancy. And this management consultancy is of a, of a bit of a different ilk. Their kind of way of doing things is that they use design thinking to help companies build strategies and organizations. And so they're doing that. They're pairing designers and these business folks to help solve problems, problems that you know don't you know, necessarily end in tangible things, but end in, in an organization and the way people work. And I got 
very excited about the ability for design to do more than create product. And that, of course, means, you know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about the design process and design thinking, which is now obviously, you know, a really well-known and understood term, well, better known, I should say. Uh, but that it's uh, something at that time wasn't really talked that much about. And Frog Design was looking to expand the way they were thinking about design and have um, strategy be a big part of what they were doing uh, and so that they weren't just helping companies create product, but actually helping that company think about what product to create and how do we go after it and what market and recognizing also that you know, designers can have a lot to say in that area and can help that process and that creation of that strategy. Uh, so they hired me as a design analyst, uh, which was kind of like a catch-all term for people that do design thinking and do design research and help with the concepting. Uh, and that eventually kind of morphed into what they now call interaction designers uh, who do you know the digital design, but they also do a lot of the design research. Uh, so it was this kind of like evolution that happened uh, that ended up you know helping me get closer to digital design, uh, but oddly enough started in a very different place. Titles are fun. Yeah. <laughs> so then you went to Green Start. Mm-hmm. Is that a direct move? Yeah. So I was at Frog Design for five years and I left there as a creative director. And I went to Green Start where um, another former Frog was. We uh, were a two-person design team to, to begin with. And then we, we brought on uh, a few other folks, um, either as contractor or full-time, uh, to help as we helped startups. Uh, and these are early stage startups. Uh, the name Green Start, of course, they were all in kind of like the green space um, and all trying to have positive impact on the planet. And each one of these companies uh, had a team, small team, you know, you always, you know, like a CEO, maybe somebody who was involved in marketing, you know, a couple of engineers, maybe a designer, but oftentimes not. And so they, they had the interest and they had the respect, I suppose, for design. And they were interested in learning more and how to improve their product. But like a lot of early stage startups, they didn't necessarily have the ability to hire on designers. And sometimes not necessarily the, the knowledge to know, like, do we need a really senior person? Do we just need a junior designer? You know, at what stage do you bring in which person? And so they uh, would come to our office and they would work in our space for the most part some of them not but for the most part and we as you know two design leaders plus you know a team of uh, additional individual contributors would help them with their design work and a big part of that was actually helping them also understand the process and how to do design and how to go and do user research and talk to people and understand their problems and where that impacted things over a journey and a journey map. Uh, and that could help them then, you know, build that product experience. So one of the companies that worked with Green Start is Scoot. Are you guys familiar? Yep. Uh, so with Scoot, a lot of that work was thinking about the, what is that user going to go through, right? They have to put their phone in the, you know, in the scoot and you know, there's the helmet and how do we charge the batteries and all these various things that happen along that journey. Uh, the branding, all these things have to go into it. And so they worked with Greenstar for a short period of time um, to help them kind of like work that out as they were in their earlier stages. And whether or not it was an investment or bringing on users, both of these things, um, you know, they needed help in taking that brand forward. And that's what we were helping them with. At what point did you decide to move on from there and Airbnb comes into the picture? Yeah. Um, I was at Green Start for about a year. And while I was working there, what I found is that I liked things, some things so much that it wasn't the right place for me. And the things that I liked so much were being embedded in these other companies. (sighs) It's where I learned I don't want to be a consultant anymore because... Client work's the worst. (laughs) It, it, there's a, sometimes it's the right thing like all my years at frog were amazing uh but yes i'm very glad to not be a consultant anymore with green start it was still somewhat of a consultant model right like we were a team helping others but the way we were doing so was very different than when i was at frog right like we were embedded they were working side by side and i just i loved that feeling like you know you sit around the table and like we're all in it together like we have the same mission and like we're, we're doing the same thing and that felt really good and it felt good knowing that like oh we're working on this problem and when that one's done we're going to work on the next one and you know if we screwed up with this one like we're the ones have to deal with it later uh and that 
I loved and I wanted more of that. And I realized I need, I, I want a full length, full time, you know, committed relationship. Uh, <laughs> so no, no more dating. Um, and so I left Green Start and it was actually around the same time that um, the company was kind of transitioning in many ways too. Uh, and so I, I started contracting, which, you know, was more of like a trying things on a little bit. Uh, it was like extreme form of dating. It was like speed dating. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was, you know, more like trying to meet my, my end partner my, my one I was going to marry <laughs> at this point where you this married act, <laughs> yeah, this, I know. this metaphor I'm is the so metaphor. good the metaphor is so good and also so bad because I did end up marrying somebody I worked with <laughs> I married a go. frog yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, at any rate um, so I uh, was contracting for a little while and during that time I um, you know was interviewing at, at some different places and um, I, I learned about the Airbnb opportunity through um, through a headhunter but also one of the things that was pretty uh, awesome about this experience is that I was asked to speak at an event uh, design plus startup and I originally was going to say no. I was like, oh, I don't really have time. I don't know. Like, I don't know if like I'll have anything interesting to say and you know, all these things that, that you tell yourself not to do. And then there was a part of me, this voice in my head that was like, no, do it. Like, you never know. Like, something great might come out of that. Like, this is a good way to like, challenge yourself and go out there and it'll be fun. And so I said yes, even though like there was a big part of me that didn't want to. I said yes and I showed up and I talked about um, actually critique, uh, you know, the, the challenges and, you know, some tips on how either being the receiver of critique or the giver of critique, you know, we can do it better. And Joe Gabia was in the room that day. Um, and he's one of the, the founders and the executive team members of Airbnb. And he, I think, also, you know, saw in that conversation or in the presentation, like, oh, my God, that's like one of the things that we've been talking about. Like, you know, I, I think there's alignment here and in, in what you're interested in. And, and so he, he and I talked further and that was kind of like a, a little bit of a, a kick to more of the interviews that I was a part of, uh, which is great. You know, and I guess that voice in my head that was like, no, go do it. That, that was right. And so I recommend y'all, you know, take on those opportunities that scare you a little bit because you never know what's on the other end. So anything in particular about critique, do you have like a, yeah, a snippet of this talk? <laughs> The lessons that you know, I was kind of like putting forward in terms of like how to give and take great critique are that you know, both sides have kind of like a part to play and both have you know, some obligations in order to make that experience great for the both of them. And so for one, if you are the one sharing work, you know, it's great to set it up, like give some context to the work. Talk about you know, maybe where you are in the process, what kind of feedback you're looking for. I mean, it's great if somebody can give you feedback that's like red flag, stop the presses, don't go forward with this. Uh, but also if like you're in the final stages, you might be interested in like, can you help me with like refinement? You know, this is QA mode right now. Can you can you help me get down in the details and let's not spend 45 minutes talking about why are we even doing this? Like, It, it might just not be useful at that moment. Now, the, the other piece is that while you're getting critique and getting feedback, you know, being an active listener and, you know, hearing what that person has to say, um, maybe even asking questions for, for clarification sake, like speaking up, I wouldn't say, you know, you need to be there to defend your work. I mean, this is part of critique. It's an opportunity essentially. To accept it. Yeah. And it's an opportunity almost of user research, right? Like mm-hmm. if I show you something and you're like, I, you know, and I tell you how it works, then you give me feedback, you know, you're biased already versus I show it to you and you're like, well, I don't really understand what I'm supposed to click. And it's like, well, that's great learning, isn't it? Uh, so, you know, you shouldn't have to like explain how it works uh, more so like provide the context of, you know, what it is you're, you're doing there. Um, and then of course, don't take it personally. I think that's the hardest thing to do. Everyone always says that, uh, but it's a big one, right? You don't, you don't want to take it personally. You have to realize it's about the work and you know, critique is in service of creating the greatest work possible. Uh, but then, you know, the other side of this, of course, is the person giving critique um, and recognizing that, you know, there is a human on the other end of it. And as much as they try to, you know, hold back, uh, you know, their uh, defensive mechanisms, they, you know, are somebody who put probably a lot of time and effort into that work that you're looking at. So being cognizant of that and recognizing that effort and also pointing out some of the things that they've done really well. Uh, you know, don't just tear it apart and show all the things that are wrong uh, because you'll end up leaving them feeling that all is lost, right? And they might end up redoing things that are actually were great 
because they just didn't know. So if you can point out, you know, well, this is really working. Uh, it's more so than just complimenting, but it's actually helping them make it better and recognize you know, what is the solid foundation that they can move on and what are the pieces that still work well. Uh, so absolutely you know, providing that kind of like positive feedback. You know, for the person that's giving, you know, that feedback is also, you know, being cognizant of the context of what work is being done or, um, at the stage. So as I mentioned before, it's like, you know, if it's final design, should you be spending the entire time talking about whether or not it's a useful product? That might be the right conversation if it's a deal breaker, right? If you're just like, I'm really worried about this. This might not be the right product. Let's talk about that. But otherwise, like understand what is that person looking for? They've engaged you. You know, they're, you're using their time as much as they're using yours. Um, how can you help them with their problem area? Uh, so ask questions, right? And if you see something that's wrong, you know, ask questions as to like, you know, have you thought about this or um, why did you go that route? Um, if you just come at it with like, you know, this should be green, uh, they, they may have thought about that already, and that actually erodes their confidence in your critique uh, because you know you've kind of jumped to a conclusion they already realized isn't the right one. These are all really great like bullet points and ideals. I'm wondering how how these work in practice at Airbnb and if you still find common struggles that like some of these bullet points that just don't end up happening or working. These bullet points are very hard to uphold. Absolutely. And I think that's yep. why we <laughs> always have to remind each other of that. Um, because, you know, what ends up happening is that people, you know, they just got out of a horrible meeting. And so they run into the room and they're just like heated and stressed out and they like have to run to another thing. It's like they don't have time to consider your feelings and they don't have time to tell you about all the good things you're doing. So they just tell you the bad things. And I have done that many of time. Uh, and that's generally where I live. I'm like, if I don't tell you what's wrong, it's fine. It's yeah. Just Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think that the missing piece is like how to do this fast and how to do this when, you know, your emotions may be running in the wrong direction. Like that part is hard. Um, but I do think that, you know, the way we get there is by thinking about this, reiterating it, talking about it, looking for ways to do it better and sharing that with each other. Um, another thing, actually, that uh, we learned from students at Cornell, we did a collaboration with Cornell students uh, where they worked on an Airbnb project. Uh, and, you know, they basically were solving uh, something that was Airbnb related or they were exploring a, something that was Airbnb related. And, you know, they talked to us a couple times throughout the semester. We gave them advice. They came and they actually did skits for their final um project which was really great like a lot of cool things yeah it was really awesome they did a great job um but they talked about you know the way that they have been doing critique in their kind of like design sessions and i love this this was really good it's um they draw up on the board a um two by two graph right so um the y and x-axis intersecting and then in the four quadrants uh they have in one uh, ideas and another questions and another negative and another positive and so what you do is that you, you show the work and then this is usually in a group setting. I don't know how well this would work maybe in a one-on-one, but in a group setting, you, you share the work and then everybody writes down on post-its what they are thinking and then you know puts those um, put the post-its in those categories. So everyone should be saying things that are, you know, things that they like about the design, things they don't like about the design that aren't working, um, questions that they have and um, additional ideas that they might have. And what's great about that is that it's like a very visual way of making sure that you're kind of giving well-balanced feedback and making sure that you're not neglecting one piece or another. Granted, it does not answer the what happens when you're like in a really rushed right. state of mind. Right, that's an involved it's, process. It, it can be, certainly. But it's really great for the, we've got multiple people in the room all fighting to say something, and which is where like I think a lot of those issues are exasperated because you've got like five people around the table and they all want to say something and they're kind of all emotionally charged and one person's annoyed the other person's like taking over the whole conversation and so it's like emotion on top of emotion and there's just like a rush and so people say a lot more of probably one thing than they should and or and or you rabbit hole into something and so you end up not giving a lot of feedback across the entire design but maybe into one little thing you burn all your time up exactly exactly you burn up your time you've talked about one thing you've talked about the like you know the letting and it's like well this is not the thing that we should be talking about Uh, so that's why that is particularly useful tool so is that is the grid process something that you put into place at Airbnb? 
Um, yes, and we've been using that um, in critiques, um, a group critique setting. Uh, the other thing that we are putting in place, and maybe you know, one day down the road we can talk about it and see how it goes. Uh, we're also going to put in crit buds into place. What uh, crit buds? Crit buds. I know it sounds like it's inspired by uh, Joe Gabia's like, first product, which is crit like, buns. Like critique friends. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Crit buds. I know you should probably use a better name, uh, but anyway. Uh, buddies. So, yeah, crit buddies. Isn't that cute? <laughs> I don't they're, know. they're gonna hold hands and skip. <laughs> Uh, I know it's a terrible name. <laughs> you literally have to skip to the meeting, <laughs> otherwise you're out of here. Feedback friends. Yes, yeah, <gasps> feedback friends. Oh, that's that's nice. Buddy bands. I'm just kidding. Now I'm going to say by the bell references. So at any rate, uh, the idea <laughs> with that is that you know we want to make sure that people are you know getting opportunities to talk about their work across teams. You know that they're interacting with other folks on the team. That they're getting opportunity to gain feedback that can help improve the work, that they're getting opportunity to learn new things from different you know, folks of different skill sets, and also giving individuals opportunity to teach others and, and mentor others. Uh, so CritBuds is, is meant for that. Uh, so it's one-on-one critiques, uh, and we'll have this probably weekly or bi-weekly. We're kind of like experimenting and prototyping it now. But what we did is that first, I sent out a survey to everybody on the team to find out, you know, what are your superpowers and what are your kryptonites? You know, it's like an oversimplified way of talking about someone's skills, of course, right? But the point is, like, what are the things that, like, you know, you, like, who do you want to be paired with? You know, are you the visual design expert that can go and help another? Uh, and so by understanding these things and, uh, you know, they, they filled in a great number of things from presentation skills, storytelling, uh, visual design, interaction design, prototyping, all these things. And then, you know, I was able to kind of like pair people up with, you know, things that would kind of balance it out and that were compatible skills. And so that way, you know, they can get together and uh, learn from each other and, and gain opportunity to take that work even further and maybe do some QA together and um, come up with new ideas or whatever it might be, whatever stage they're at. Uh, but I also think like doing this on a very regular basis, making it a part of our team and one of the things that we do, a number of things that we do, um, also helps to help us be better at critique in general. I like that you said you, you're iterating on this, like it's almost a, a product in itself. Like, it all yeah, is. It's the best. The process yeah. is the product. Yeah. Is everything. there a formalized process for building out the processes? Is there <laughs> a uh, process of process? Oh, jeez. It all comes back to the design process, guys. We got a good one with this thing. You know, we should we should stick with it. You know, you research, you come up with concepts, you you, it, you test them, you iterate. Like, it works for just about everything, and including creating process. <laughs> You mentioned that you got to spend a lot of time learning about how businesses and business people and designers can work alongside each other. No, so, they can't. <laughs> so I'm curious at Airbnb what that looks like in practice, mm-hmm. uh, where business needs sitting next to design needs, especially from your position as, as building a design team. Like how, how do you work with the people who worry about the money and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny. It's the last question because I feel like we could spend a lot of time on this. Good, because I feel the exact opposite of that. Like it should be design <laughs> values. Bryn, like Bryn business goals this in and one design sentence. goals are the same, but just different perspectives. Whew, thank God I asked Katie. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry. I, I Sorry, totally buddy. agree with Brent. Who I, sings this song? <laughs> okay, let them do it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I do agree. I, business goals are the same as design goals and vice versa. You know, they should absolutely be the same. And at the end of the day, they are the same. They are. It's but let's talk there. about in practice. Yeah. How do you get there? Yes. Absolutely. They're the same. Yeah. That's the practice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, and I think it's it's along the way that it becomes a little harder to speak of it as like they're the same, right? Because along the way, you're thinking about like, how do you make decisions? And, you know, you might not know how, you know, this product is going to end up in the long run, like how users are going to react to it. So it's hard to say that like, you know, we need to do this because it's going to help the business when like it might not help the business for like a year, two years, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's, there's really obvious choices that are going to help the business, but not necessarily be the best design choices. And you want to be able to have that conversation. Um, and so the way that, you know, we aim to do that is make sure that, you know, we all are around the table. We all have a seat at the table. Uh, we talk about it as the Triforce. In fact, there, there are more parties what? involved in that. What? The what? Like, 
like wisdom, courage. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the legitimate Triforce? Um, well, maybe we're, we're stealing the word a little bit. Okay. Yeah, because okay. no, we I don't talk like, about it that second. way. No, that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, yeah, fancy names who's for Ganondorf? lots of things. <laughs> I wonder who actually said that first. It was probably Joe Bot. But at any rate, the Triforce is um, engineering, product management, and design. Uh, within engineering, that also includes data science. Uh, within design, that also includes user research. Um, and then, of course, there's also this kind of like uh, other piece, which is, you know, oftentimes like, you know, the, the financial side of things, right? So they're all a part of this kind of collaboration that we have. And we seek to have that essentially every level of the organization so that when we're put in a position where we're trying to decide the right move, uh, we can have the voice of design, we can have the voice of engineering, we can have the voice of product uh, to help us make that right decision. And often it does come down to a debate and, you know, it's it's tough to make the decision. Uh, but I think that's, you know, kind of one of the reasons why we need those parties there. Uh, so, for example, we were exploring something for the homepage, how to talk about our uh, opportunities for hosts. And so there were many different explorations that we looked at, right? So it's like, you know, host on Airbnb, you can make X amount of dollars. Uh, or, you know, host on Airbnb, you know, open you know, your doors to different people around the world or, you know, show somebody your city. And there are many different ways that we can do that. And there are a few ways, like if you mapped out our different uh, product ideas or different uh, design ideas, there are ways that like, very clearly probably better for the business, but not necessarily immediately as good for the user experience. And so we, we have to have that conversation. We have to have the conversation about, well, you know, what what does Airbnb do? What is the, the brand that seeks to create something that's really approachable for our users um, and, you know, actually speaks to more of the experience, the humanity of it. And that leads us down a path that, you know, will we'll dictate our design decisions where sometimes, you know, it's like, all right, yeah, we're not going to go with the thing that is going to have immediate impact in terms of like our metrics, but will have greater impact over the long haul over our metrics because it'll be better for the user experience. And I think a lot of that is done by having that conversation around that table. I'm curious, like where companies draw the line of like, how much are we willing to invest in designers kind of exploring or thinking of new things tangential to the business versus we need them to put in this time to make the core business grow. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think it's, you know, an inherent challenge in just about every company, right? Because oftentimes the, you know, the re result of short-term iteration is much more easily seen and quantified and therefore is less risky. And so it's, it's really easy to say, like, well, just go and do that. You know, like, make the button bigger and more people will click it. Like, yep. That's true. Um, but really, you know, it's like, well, actually, we, we kind of need to redo the entire flow. And that will be better in the long run. Uh, and what I think, you know, is on us as designers to do is to convince others of the move that you know, should be taken in order to get to a point where, you know, we can take not only small iterative changes, but also bigger changes. Because there is a time and place for both, of course, right? We, we can all admit to that. Uh, but that we want to be able to, you know, explore broadly. We want to be able to think about things, you know, very future forward. Like, how might it be different? We want to ask ourselves, like, how might we versus um, only explore what's right in front of us? And, you know, I think a lot of that is you've got to you know, earn the trust from the team to gain that space. And we are designers. We are visual. We are able to prototype and demonstrate. So it's pretty easy to convince someone when you can actually show them. So, for example, let's say, you know, there's designers at Airbnb and they want to reinvent search, right? And it's like, oh, like we want to go like, for four months and go sit in a, you know, separate office building and go and create this and come back with something marvelous. Like, I think that'd be really hard to do. I think that'd be really hard for people to say like, yeah, sure, go and do that. Let's see what happens. Uh, but if they, you know, have a vision for what they're creating and they have an understanding of, you know, what might come out of this and they can also demonstrate how this is going to contribute uh, to the long haul, uh, it's much easier to kind of gain excitement 
and support to go and do something like that. Um, and also, you know, thinking about ways to make it work within, you know, the organization at whole. Uh, so if it's, you know, going to contribute to the work of other teams, like how do you, you know, bring them in? Like, you know, just going off and designing something on the mountain by yourself um, can end up being very quickly rejected from the team uh, just because of that separation. So I do think that designers kind of have a, a job to do in terms of, you know, working with partners to, you know, improve processes when they think there's opportunity to, but also just like anyone else, you know, you, you need to demonstrate the value of your ideas, um, and gain buy-in, um, and not just expect like, oh, they keep putting me on small things. Like, can't they see what I do with these big ideas? Like show them we have the opportunity to do that. Cool. Well, we're actually out of time. So anything you want to plug before you go? Actually, coming up in November, Airbnb has a big event going on uh, for the hosts of the Airbnb community. And it's a three-day long conference um, to mix uh, event sequence. So there's going to be you know, big keynote addresses and then also like small breakout sessions. So there'll be everything from you know, kind of like inspiration and learning from like Elaine DeBotton uh, about you know, travel and hospitality and big ideas, but then also smaller breakout sessions where we're talking about like, you know, how to kind of like optimize your product, how to, you know, bring, uh, elevate your level of hospitality. Uh, we're doing a design event. We're talking about design. We're also going to kind of get them uh, doing some design as well so that it can be more of a co-creative process. Uh, and so that's happening in Paris. Last year we did it here in San Francisco, a uh, much smaller group. And so, you know, based on the success of that, this one has expanded quite a bit. And we're kind of thrilled and excited about that great way to meet the folks that we, you know, work with and work for. Awesome. Sweet. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Sweet. Thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the Thanks time. Thanks for taking Thank the time. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Lovely chatting with you. That was it. Episode 73. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, let us know on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM or hit us up on Slack in our Slack team. That's spec.fm slash Slack. And of course, if you just want to listen to some of our other shows on the Spec Network, you can find those at spec.fm. Before we go, huge thank you once again to the two sponsors that made this show possible. One Month is the first ever online school specifically for tech entrepreneurs. It's the easiest way to learn new tech and business skills by actually building products like Instagram and Pinterest. You're actually building them. If you go to onemonth.com slash design details, you can learn more and start building stuff today. That'll get you 25% off your first month. Once again, onemonth.com slash design details. Thanks to One Month. Our second sponsor, once again, Dropbox. They make all the best tools for working together on teams. So if you're a designer working with other people, or if you're a designer working by yourself and keeping files synced across all your devices matters to you. That's wonderful. Go check them out. Dropbox.com. Thank you once again for the support. And we'll see you on Monday.